The medical information included in this podcast is provided as an educational resource only. Please consult your healthcare provider before making any healthcare decisions. That's the big message is hope and try to live your life the best you can. You make this deflection of the angle of the disease so that 10, 20, 30 years down the road, you're in a better place. On this episode of the Fabricast, we have an individual whose journey in the field of medicine has been nothing short of extraordinary. Dr. Anil Khan is a pediatrician, a medical geneticist, and a metabolic disease specialist. He founded the first in Alberta clinically accredited whole exome genome sequencing laboratory named Discovery DNA. He is based in Calgary at Metabolics and Genetics in Canada, more commonly known as the Magic Clinic. It's a clinic that aims to shorten the diagnostic odyssey, provide timely access to genetic testing, and advance the number of therapies available to treat rare diseases. He was also the first in the world to treat Fabre and Gaucher disease with gene therapy. But behind his impressive academic and professional achievements, there is a passionate and empathetic person here. As full as your schedule is, you always make yourself available to the many patient organizations that you work with. Your answer is always yes when asked to speak and join us at our meetings. And we're lucky to have you as our medical advisor to the CFA. So without further ado, thank you, Dr. Khan, for being our guest on today's podcast. Ask a doctor anything. Thank you so much, Julia, for that very kind introduction. So let's go to the question. Let's get to the question. So we've asked our Fabry community what questions they have. Mm-hmm. And because when we go to clinic, we don't always have time to ask some of these different questions. So let's get started. Our first one is, is Fabry an inflammatory disease? So when we think of inflammatory disease, we think did it primarily start as an inflammatory disease or because of some tissue injury is inflammation part of it. So it is not primarily an inflammatory disease. That's not how it really starts. But what happens is when tissue damage occurs, uh, let's say the heart or the kidneys, and it can trigger inflammatory responses. So that's generally what happens. Most of the usual things we look for for inflammation like uh, an increased number of cells, white blood cells in an area. If you do biopsies in Fabry disease patients, that's not typically what you see, but you have to look at other chemical markers of inflammation. So there is an inflammatory response in Fabry disease. That part is increasingly becoming clear. Is there anything we can do to combat this inflammation? Right now, there isn't anything we can specifically target that would have minimal side effects. So one of the drugs that we use to deal with inflammation as a whole are corticosteroids. And corticosteroids in family Fabry disease would cause more problems than they could solve. So I think over time, as we understand the intricacies of the inflammatory response in Fabry disease, then we would have a better idea of what we could use. And The technology is increasing in terms of the types of things you can use to target specific inflammatory responses. For example, a lot of the biologic agents that are out there have specific targeted responses to certain parts of the inflammatory response. And probably that's where we might get some movement in the future. But right now, there's no approved anti-inflammatory therapy for Fabry disease. 
Okay. Question number two. What comes first, LVH or fibrosis? Well, that's a very good question. So there's no 100% either way, but in most patients, what I have seen is the hypertrophy usually precedes the fibrosis. Because if we ask what fibrosis is, it is scarring. Similar to if you get a, a cut on your skin and you get scar tissue forming and you have a scab there and then, then eventually it's formed, you, you notice that it's not as flexible if you get a cut on your knee because you fell off a bike or something like that. And the same thing happens in the heart, that fibrosis is not as flexible. It doesn't contract when the heart wants to contract. It doesn't contribute to it. And it's often not a first process. It happens because the heart starts to thicken in response to the Fabry disease and and the way it's affecting the heart. And as it thickens, eventually some parts of the tissue die and form a scar tissue, which is the fibrosis. Now, I have seen in some occasions the fibrosis start first because, again, fibrosis is damaged tissue. So you don't need hypertrophy to have damaged tissue, but by and large, you see hypertrophy starting before you see fibrosis. And, and we have to remember that you only pick up fibrosis with a cardiac MRI. You cannot pick it up with an echocardiogram. So we don't know in most people still what percentages are coming first, only in centers that have cardiac MRI that are doing these routine scans. So that information comes from what's in the literature and then my experience with doing MRIs regularly over the years. Okay, thank you. Question number three. Um, Patients are wondering why, when they're flying, they have and experience more pain. Well, in some instances, when you fly, depending on aircraft, cabin pressure, things like that, it is possible that the oxygen tension drops uh, when you're at high altitude. And we, we tend to think that the oxygen in the airplane around us is about the same, but it can vary, actually. And you might find that if you dig deep into manuals or, or disclaimers about flying and oxygen tension. So that could be a reason, but we don't have any real data on that. And, you know, I got one of those fancy watches that gives me my oxygen saturation, and I tried to test it out a few times. But I think in the planes I was in, they were well pressurized. They were big commercial jets, so we didn't see anything. You have to really be over 24,000 feet altitude for that pressurization to be needed. So it depends on the aircraft. So that's one possible theory, but not a lot of data to prove it. The second is dehydration. So we are often dehydrated when we get on a plane. I mean, the last few flights I've had, they gave me, I don't know, about 125 to 200 milliliters of water total. You had to wait for it to come around. So you're dehydrated. You're also under stress. You know, trying to get to the plane, the gate. I mean, generally those things are, there's a little bit of increased stress when you're taking a flight. So those three, I think, are likely contributors. The last one could be temperature. So when you initially get on a plane, depending on where you board, the climate control hasn't been activated. That only happens after the doors are sealed. So if the air conditioning had to turn on or if the temperature in the cabin changed, that can also be a factor. Again, there's, I don't have raw data on that, but I think those are likely the factors involved with that. Yeah, that's great. And I think that's even some tips there for patients to know to do 
you know, stay hydrated and maybe wear some layers to monitor your temperature, things like that, that can help maybe ease some of that discomfort. And speaking about pain, you know, a lot of patients are using gabapentin. Is gabapentin something that you can be on long term? So many patients that use gabapentin for Fabry pain are on it long term for many years or for many decades. We're not seeing any real chronic side effects of use of gabapentin when it's used within the dose ranges that, that you need to use it in. So it's generally well tolerated. But, you know, with, with any drug, you have to wonder if you're using it for a chronic disease in a rare disease situation. There's very little data on that. Gabapentin's used for seizure control and for pain control. But most of those situations where people have pain aren't a lifelong situation like we have with Fabry disease. But I just haven't seen any signals, even in the people that use it, that show that there seem to be long-term consequences from it yet. But um, there's always a risk with these drugs. Okay, thank you. And this is our last question. So are Fabry patients at an increased risk of having blood clots? So Fabry and blood clots. Now, if we go to the idea that Fabry disease is a change in the DNA sequence of the GLA gene causing uh, the disease, that itself does not produce an increased risk of blood clots as far as we know it. But what I also tell people is Fabry actually is a complex disease. We think of it as one DNA change in one pathway causing change in one enzyme, but the cascade effect of that is actually quite complex. So in general, there is a higher risk of blood clots for people with Fabry disease due to a number of reasons that aren't directly related to the GLA gene. So one of the reasons is atrial fibrillation, and they can develop blood clots in the heart, uh, and that can lead to stroke. And there is a higher risk, certainly in Fabry patients, for developing that. If you look at other types of blood clots, um, there isn't a problem with how the blood is clotting. It's when these other issues of damage occur, then they can set up a situation where the blood clot risk is increased. So if you look at something like a deep vein thrombosis, if you have pain in the legs, you're not moving around very much, you're not well hydrated then these other factors will, will start to contribute to your risk of clotting. But I don't know that the Fabry disease itself uh, does that. Now, we know Fabry disease affects the endothelial cells, which are the cells that line the blood vessels. And that's one of the contributors in the cascade that will start, uh, let's say, a blood clot. So it just has to be studied a little more for us to be able to say there's a direct causal relationship. So, so there could be some factor there in endothelial damage that's happening over a long time because of the Fabry disease that might change the risk of some of these clots. And the third major group of clot would obviously be pulmonary emboli, which would be in the vessels that affect blood flow to and from the lungs. So those endothelial cells which which should also affect the risk of stroke. It is, I would say the risk is higher because of that endothelial damage, but not because of the, the GLA gene itself. It's because of the lipid accumulation that's causing damage to those cells. Okay. And do you, with with all of this happening, do you suggest anything being used to, to help? Do you, do you suggest anything yeah. being used to, yeah, so, to prevent it? 
So for some time, we had people on low-dose aspirin, but there mm-hmm. wasn't a lot of evidence to say that that was really working. So the latest FABRI guidelines don't list that as a, as a mandatory thing. Uh, although I've had some patients that have developed clots, and I've wondered, you know, it, how much do we know about it? We don't know very much because in a rare disease, it's very difficult to study that. Right. But I guess the first basic thing I say to people, which you've probably heard and are tired of hearing, so I can almost hear the eyes rolling, is to stop smoking if you smoke. Because smoking causes direct endothelial damage, and you're basically adding insult to injury. And so we do see somewhat higher issues with these sort of endothelial damage things, in addition to heart disease and stuff like that, if you smoke. So if you had to pick one thing, stop smoking or take drugs to try to ameliorate the risk, certainly stopping smoking is the big one. And the rest is a disease treatment. So we we know the risks for a lot of these things like atrial fibrillation or endothelial injury go up if the Fabry disease is untreated. And we know when we start treating, we don't immediately reduce that risk. It's treatment over a long period of time that reduces the accumulated toxin load from, let's say, lysogb 3 GB3, or things like that, that slowly changes the risk level. So, so treatment of the Fabry disease itself is something that can help. We like to end our podcasts with just one tip, one thing that if you could just have every Fabry patient know, what would you tell us? What would you tell them? Well, the big thing I I see right now, and especially this is for young people, is hope for the future. And when you're young and you have Fabry disease and it's causing pain, it doesn't seem like you have a future. I would say to them to follow through with the recommendations for the different treatments. Understand that sometimes those things don't work completely, but to hang in there. Yeah. Because we don't see the statistics in Fabry disease on people who are in treatment that used to worry us a lot, which is, you know, average 45 year life expectancy for a male and 55 for a female. That's not what we're seeing. So the Fabry patients I have had, keeping in mind that, you know, enzyme treatment is not, has not been on the books for that long, actually. But so some of these people were treated, let's say in midlife, when they've died, they've died you know, much past 55. And yes, some of the issues were related to complications from Fabry disease. But when I see young people who are being treated, we don't see them progressing the same way that those people did who were started in midlife. So I think there's hope. Right. And new treatments are always on the horizon, new drugs coming out. And I think that's the big message is hope and try to live your life the best you can. There are many people who actually, because of treatment with the various different approved products out there, are able to do that. So their lives have changed. And so treatment is important too, and that can help with getting your body into a better situation in the long run. It's very hard to see 20 years from now where things will be, especially if you're only 20. And what I try to tell them, because I'm not 20 anymore, is... It's going to take some time, but this is the right direction we have to be in, whether it's enzyme therapy or chaperone or substrate reduction therapy, that you make this deflection of the angle of the disease so that 
10, 20, 30 years down the road, you're in a better place. And that's, that's the big message. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for your dedication, your commitment, and thanks for your time today. And thank you very much. And everybody have a nice day. You too. Take care.